everyone. This is a bonus episode of Goddard in the World podcast, uh, where I wanted to address the Atlanta shootings that happened about a week ago. We're recording on March 23, so it happened last Tuesday, um, 2021. The Atlanta shootings and three Asian-American-owned businesses. Um, At this time, uh, as... (laughs) As we are recording this, there has been another mass shooting in Boulder, Colorado. Um, That story is still developing. And we as a country, I believe we need to have yet another discussion about gun violence and accessibility. Um, But I don't know enough about that story to talk about it. So right now we're going to just focus on the Atlanta shootings. Um, As many of you know... um, I am an Asian woman. I am Filipino, and I have been living in New York uh, throughout this entire pandemic. Uh, So the shootings were not a surprise to me. Anti-Asian hate has been on the rise since our last president deemed the coronavirus, the China virus, in speeches, officially, whatever, and uh, Kung flu. And um, some people think that is just a joke because they thought everything that he said was a joke, but whatever, it's fucking not. (laughs) It's not a joke. Um, And uh, when coronavirus started coming into our vocabulary, when our president, um, previous president, uh, was talking about the China virus, and before we knew that it would be a full-fledged pandemic, I, here in New York City, there was a lot of fear around going downtown to Chinatown. Um, People were avoiding Chinese-owned businesses. And I'm sure there was a lot of racial epithets uh, hurled at um, Asian Americans uh, even then. It was uh, Lunar New Year uh, last year, so like February of 2020. And I made a point to go down with my husband to Chinatown because we wanted to support them. I mean, we, we've always loved Chinatown. Um, I, as I said, I'm Filipino and uh, Filipinos have found a home in Chinatown uh, in New York and other Chinatowns around the country for many generations. I have not personally experienced racism on the streets, um, and I'm very fortunate for that. Um, I've also not been out on the streets um, like most people um, during this pandemic. So, uh, yeah, but I know that it's been happening throughout this city, uh, my city, and many others. So while it's not a surprise to me that this happened, I wanted to talk about it. I know that on social media and in the news that it the shootings were a surprise to some people. For me... Uh, George Floyd's murder last year. Also not a surprise. Um, I certainly uh, was aware of police violence uh, back then, but um, the outcry after his murder was a catalyst for me to want to dig deeper into our American history and um, learn about history through an anti-racist lens. Looking at systems uh, rather than just trying to individualize uh, the people who committed these murders. So today, I wanted to talk about the Atlanta shootings through an anti-racist learning lens. And I've asked my friend, Kaylina Mills, who is also a Goddard graduate, to sit down with me today to discuss this. Uh, Kaylina is the organizer of the Alumni Council, which I am on. And uh, together, we have co-created and co-facilitated the anti-racist learning circle uh, for, for Goddard alumni, students, whoever is associated with uh, Goddard alumni and students. So thank you, Kaylina, for being here today. Kaylina, can you talk a little bit about your background with anti-racism education and why people should look at our history through an anti-racist lens? Sure. Um, That's a really big question. Um, So I guess I'll just start... Um, with my Goddard story, which is I started in the undergraduate program at Goddard when I was 19 years old. Um, and 
in, in the modern era of Goddard, that is very rare. Um, <laughs> I was the youngest person in the program by, um, a long shot. And, um, it was a very interesting time to enter Goddard as well, because that residency, Mumia Abu-Jamal was going to be the commencement speaker. And Goddard had released a press release about that, and Fox News had gotten a hold of it. Mm. So Fox News for weeks leading up to this residency was blasting Goddard College all over mm. their feed, um, saying that we were... Um, you know, hiring a convicted cop killer and all of these things. And so we actually had to have our um, student IDs in order to get into graduation. Um, Mm. There were Fox News cameras and protesters on campus. Um, It was really a wild time to just really be thrust into all of that, into Goddard, into this conversation around race and police brutality. And um, it wasn't new to me, uh, that idea Ferguson had recently happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but Ferguson was really the first time I had heard about it in my young life. Mm-hmm. Um, because I grew up in Maine, which is the whitest state in the country. And just the way racism works here is very different than the way it works in the South or the Midwest. Um, mm-hmm there's still plenty of racism, but it just wasn't as apparent to me, um, in such a white bubble. I did grow up, grow up in Portland, which is the most diverse city in Maine, but even then it's, it's not, you know, as diverse as most other places in the country. So I came from this kind of, uh, sheltered background, I would say, and Goddard really thrust me into conversations around race. I really Mm -hmm. boldly, That's what a lot of people in that program were studying was justice and inclusion or um, racism or activism in some way. So I just was really immersed in that at Goddard. And um, I had wanted to study early childhood education, which I did, but it really took on a new focus very quickly for me. Um, I ended up studying social justice education in early childhood was what I studied and social justice uh, encompassed gender and ability and things like that as well. But I had a very strong anti-racist focus. I spent several semesters just focused on that alone. So that is how I got into anti-racist education. And I really look at it in early childhood um, from a perspective of socialization and to align that with sort of the systems thought that is so present in anti-racism today, I think about it as socialization as the process of building a child's framework for their mind. It's like the way they're socialized teaches them how to think. It teaches them what is normal and what the expectations are um, to the extent that they can't even see outside of it. That is the system of their brain and mm-hmm. dismantling that and <laughs> offering a different system for their uh, thoughts in early childhood, to me, parallels a lot of dismantling systems at a political level mm-hmm. on the broader national scale. So, yeah, I think that answers your first question. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there's a big questions. Yeah. yeah. And the second question about why should people look at history through an anti-racist lens? Um, mm-hmm. To me, it comes back to that socialization piece, which can also be considered as someone's context, right? There's a lot of conversation when you're talking about history or historical documents to look at the cultural context of the author or or of the person writing the Mm -hmm. essay or the letter. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what someone's cultural context is. How were they socialized? What is the the frame of thought that they have for the world? How does that limit them? How does that empower them? Those sorts of questions are really important to ask uh, when you're looking at history, because otherwise uh, you can't get a sense of the full picture of history. If you're just looking at their words on a page. Um, so yeah, so that's why I think it's important, uh, to look at it through an anti-racist lens 
because then you're able to identify racism Mm -hmm. uh, in their cultural context and Mm -hmm. see how that affected their thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've been reading a lot of Kendi, (laughs) Ibram X Kendi, (laughs) um, and a lot of other ones. Um, And when I was talking to a historian friend of mine, I asked her what questions should we be asking um, because she's a historian, but she's also and she's a librarian. So all of those things (laughs) together. But she's like, there are so many questions to be asking, but a good one, like you were saying, with understanding the cultural context is who who are they leaving out? Like, why are they, why are they telling this story and why are they leaving out other stories? Um, and for me, I, I mean, I, I didn't really study history. I, I studied art history, which is, you know, its own little thing, but, um, <laughs> um not really relevant. Um, but, um, I think it's, I think it's really important to understand just like our canons, um, and, like our, our our canon of history or canon of whatever, um, and know that these are, these are created. <laughs> these are not fixed in stone, and people chose these stories to tell over others, um, and especially like racist myths. Um, I was talking to a friend, and we, we were talking, uh, you and me, Kaylina, with our uh, anti-racism circle uh, this past Sunday uh, about cultural myths and myth, myth I can talk about. <laughs> myth, <laughs> myth is something I did discuss in um, my, my Goddard education. I, I went into Goddard thinking that myths were spontaneous. And I mean, people will fight me on this and that's fine. We can have an argument about Jung and um, Joseph Campbell and all of that. But I, I mean, I was an acolyte prior but Karen Miriam Goldberg, who was my advisor um, and has a doctorate in mythology and feminist mythology, um, really encouraged me to think about why these certain stories were allowed to stay um, and, and sort of rose up um, over other stories because um, there, there are stories that didn't, you know, that, that there, there are stories that were told at the time and then were suppressed for one reason or another, usually uh, patriarchy or <laughs> or um, racism. And so it it's always important to understand the political context, the cultural context, historical context of any story, any cultural myth. And so in this particular instance um, with the Atlanta shootings. One of the things that has been like, I just talked about patriarchy and all of that. So like, um, this might not necessarily be anti-racist, but, uh, one of the things that had come out as a possible motive was this guy's, uh, sexual addiction and, um, how he, targeted these places because he thought they were feeding into his sexual addiction. Now, some people say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with being Asian, you know, like, like why, why he would pick Asian businesses. But I will urge you to read a bunch of history. <laughs> um, and you don't, yeah, you don't have to go too far um, to see how Asian women or, or you don't have to go too deep into like movies or whatever um, to see how Asian women have been um, sexualized, um, both set like both thought of as like sexual tempters and then uh, submissive. It's very weird. Like it's a ve- like we think of these as like two opposite things, but um, at least in our portrayal of Asian women, I mean, one of the things that uh, one of my favorite musicals growing up, and I still like it's still like in my DNA, um, was Miss Saigon, um, which is rife with these ideas. 
like it's it's <laughs> disturbing honestly like yeah. um you know like both the sexualization and the submissiveness uh sometimes in the same character well and i think just about that a lot of people do see those as very opposing ideas right uh the hypersexualization and the submissive uh sort of purity right stereotypes um and but the but the interesting thing is that I think it feeds into a patriarchal narrative mm-hmm. of domination, right? Because it's like you, it, it's like you're uncovering, uh, well, it's like men are trying to uncover the sexual being underneath and like liberate them or like get them to submit to them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, So it's this interesting thing where it's like, oh, they're submissive, but that's hiding their inner sexuality. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And that you're like a really amazing man if you can get them to, um, if you can overcome their submissive outside to get to their sexual inside. And so Mm -hmm. I think those two things actually play together a lot in -hmm. sort of male domination Mm -hmm. narratives. Yeah, no, it it (laughs) totally does. It totally, it totally does. And then you know, we were you you were talking about like your social justice slant um, in your education and this like feminist patriarchy, you know, and like you know dismantling the patriarchy thing, you know, like I assume would be, I assume would be part of that. I mean, you can tell me. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Cool. Yeah. And it has to, I mean, it's, but like going into the history too, like it, it does not take that long. Like I, in my twenties, I am 40 now, but like in my twenties, I would be out at like bars and stuff. Um, and I would be approached by like older white men (laughs) who would say, oh, you look like someone I knew when I was serving, you know, like, which is so gross, (laughs) ridiculous, like, but it's also like talking about colonization, you know, like, like the colonial kind of mentality. I mean, like how many wars has this country fought? How many countries have we sent you know, mostly white troops over to like the Pacific (laughs) and, um, you know, that's like all of 20th century wars, like, you know, were not all, not world war one, but like, and, uh, Korea. Yeah. Korea. Notably. (laughs) Japan. Um, Yeah. 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 (laughs) That's one. (laughs) That's another one. Um, and so to say that, um, to say that I look like someone who they really loved or adored or whatever, like had some sort of relationship with over there is kind of weird and gross. <laughs> I mean, the history of like Filipino comfort women and Miss Saigon is about the the prostitutes in South Vietnam um, who were there for the American servicemen. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think they thought it was a compliment, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Right. Um, but exactly. Yeah. They totally did. They, they assumed that that's flattering um, mm-hmm. because they liked that woman. So mm-hmm. by saying that you're like her, it must be flattering because they liked <laughs> her. So they'll like you, but um, they don't have any idea of how that comes across as, as conquering or colonization, right? They went mm-hmm. to these places. These women, if they had a relationship, mm-hmm. um, it was it was imbalanced. There was an imbalanced power dynamic. There was an American soldier and um, an Asian woman who mm-hmm. was who was being controlled by the American army um, mm-hmm. or by some other form of exploitation. And so, again, they're just replicating that power imbalance, which is racialized. Mm-hmm. And, and they have no idea that any of that is coming up in what they're, they're saying. Yeah. When I was in my twenties, I just thought, ew, <laughs> gross. Um, because they were older, like than than me. And, uh, I just thought it was 
like, ugh. but um, now, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is just like gross. Um, but now seeing it from this distance of history, uh, it's sort of appalling. <laughs> it's, 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 it's pretty appalling. Well, I think, I think that's the key is it's in a lot of imbalanced relationships, you don't always realize the full context for yourself. If you are on the, if you are not the one in power in the relationship Mm -hmm. and, and I guess for me, it just makes me think about how entitled so many white men in particular are Mm -hmm. to these relationships Yeah, I think the power imbalance and the fact that these white men, older white men, just had no context for it. I think that's something that that addresses something that we talked about um, in our anti-racist circles, this past one and the one before, I think, uh, where even if race is not a biologically or anthropologically useful category. It is important to talk about because people of different races have different experiences in history. So I was reading Kathy Park Hong's Minor Feelings yesterday, and she referenced this um i think i think it was her I, she referenced that someone saying oh asians you you sh- you should be fine you're next in line to be white <laughs> okay <laughs> so that kind of melting pot trying to paper over um someone's Asianness by saying that they could be white. That I mean, it happens everywhere. Like I, when I was doing research for uh, marketing, <laughs> like marketing reports will put Asian, Asians and white people together um, as like, like a block. Of, yeah. Like yeah. a block to market to. Thank you. Like I would love race not to matter, but it does because we come at this, like, especially in America, we come at um, our history, our experience, our way of moving through the world. We come at our experiences through our race. And I don't think we can hide behind that at all. Yeah. I I can't remember where I read this. This was years ago. But um, basically the gist is that race is not a biological fact. There's, there's Mm -hmm. no race gene in our, in our DNA. Um, so you're right. It's not biologically important, but society, the world Mm -hmm. invented races and then ascribed all kinds of meaning to them. Right. And as such, they're meaningful. Um, (laughs) like that's just the way it is. And, um, you know, it kind of reminds me of when people are like, the economy's made up. It's just paper that we ascribe meaning to. And it's like, yeah, that's true. And yet it <laughs> dictates our entire existence. Like, right. um, so yeah, lots of things. In fact, everything is just something humans like invented. <laughs> that's how society works. Uh, that doesn't mean <laughs> it's not important. <laughs> like I talk a lot about in my work as an early childhood educator, uh, meaning making systems. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I, that is all over my thesis from Goddard is <laughs> the word meaning making <laughs> systems because it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. Uh, if that's your way of making meaning, um, right. and you can always unlearn those meaning making systems and mm-hmm. replace them and create new meaning making systems for yourself. Um, but at the end of the day, making meaning is like how humans live. There's no Mm -hmm. getting around it. And so we've created this random system where we racialized every person on the planet. And now (laughs) that has a lot of meaning. So Mm -hmm. we have to deal with it. (laughs) And it can mean different things. I mean, you know, when Kaylina and I were like building the anti-racism circles and trying to like outline what we were going to talk about when and, um, all of this stuff, our notes are 
a fucking mess because like it's like it's like oh my god we can talk about this we can talk about that and it's like it we just we had to like pick you know like and mm-hmm. one of the ways that we had to narrow down was like we have to only talk about this in the United States because if we start talking about racism all over the world we're just going to get completely lost like because race different races can have different meanings in different countries. Um, Yeah. So my friend, Andres Bonilla, who I went to Goddard with, um, Mm -hmm. and he recently graduated. um, He is from Guatemala and Mm -hmm. his family has been in Guatemala for generations. And, and, you know, he actually traveled all around the world growing up. Uh, He lived in Rwanda and very, very different countries because of his parents' jobs. But anyway, so, um, you know, he said to me once, like, I don't consider myself Latino. Hmm. Um, and I was like, well, what is it in your home country? Because he was then explaining how, you know, his whole family tree, uh, can all be kind of traced back to Spanish and conquistadors. Uh-huh. That's how uh-huh. they ended up in Gu- Guatemala. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is racialized in the U S when he lived here and when he travels here as Latino Mm-hmm. because of how he speaks and how he looks and and that sort of thing um but in his home country of Guatemala you know he's white and that's how he's perceived mm. um and i think that's really interesting how you know race isn't even a static uh descriptor mm-hmm. around the world even though the whole world has been racialized mm-hmm. uh Uh, how you are perceived changes based on where you are, which is really Mm -hmm. just super interesting to me. Yeah. So it, I mean, these, these things are fluid. These identities are fluid, um, but they all mean something somewhere. And, and I think it's super important for us to, to really understand. um, And, and that's how, you know, diving through the history will, will help us like figure that out. And so this week, uh, this past week in our anti-racism circle, our topic was already um, origins of racism in the U.S. And I had a couple of things that I wanted to talk about and all of that. And then um, the Atlanta shootings happened. And so I definitely wanted to make space for that, at, like right at the very top. But and but it actually turned out to be incredibly relevant to what we were talking about yeah <laughs> to 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 cultural myths and how we're perceived and how how we take them on how people how people take on cultural myths and how it affects their experience throughout the world or throughout like moving through the world um and one of the things that Kelina, you brought up uh, when when you and I were designing this session was normalization, like the white the white person in the U.S. being the norm uh, versus a person of color, and related to the Atlanta shooting case. Um, the police, uh, who's the, I don't know his name and don't care. Um, the police (laughs) who spoke on behalf of the case at like the day after, I mean, this has been lambasted in the media, uh, rightly so, um, said the shooter was just, was having a really bad day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So he was having a really bad day. Conversely, it's come out that a Mexican man who is married to one of the victims uh, was handcuffed in a cop car for four hours, even after they knew that he was married to one of the one of the people there, even after they knew she, his wife was dead. Kaylina, you know, like our next our next uh, session, coincidentally, is about the prison system. Um, so can we talk a little bit uh, about how police treat white suspects versus people of color. <laughs> we can talk a lot about it. I know. Yeah. I, know. I mean, yeah. whole books and podcasts and sure. I'm sure much more have, have been produced on this very subject. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, We've assigned a couple of them to our 
<laughs> to our circle. I don't think I have anything revolutionary or novel to say on this topic, but I think the thing that I end up saying when I'm talking to other white people mm-hmm. um, about uh, this subject is that it's in the it's in the disparities of how they're taken in, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, these people always want to defend cops and say, "Oh, they were scared for their life," and "Oh, they thought they had a weapon, so they fired," and and that would be a reason. I don't believe a justifiable reason, but it would be a legitimate reason if they were killing uh, white people and and people of color at similar rates, right? Right. Uh, but that is just not true. That is not mm-hmm. happening. Um, and I often bring up the Dylan Roof shooting at the mm-hmm. church um, in this example because they knew that he had a weapon. They mm-hmm. knew that he had killed many people in that building. And somehow they weren't scared for their life. Somehow mm-hmm. they were able to um, apprehend Dylan Roof uh, alive. Mm-hmm. And even bought him Burger King in the squad mm-hmm. car, which, uh, you know, that would never happen to a person of color. And yeah. so, you know, that's the real disparity. I think, obviously, if lots of people were being killed by police, that would also be awful. But it's really in the disparity uh, between whites and people of color in this country. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the big thing in my mind and the most damning piece of evidence against um, any cop defenders arguments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there is always a rush to individualize the white alleged, you know, shooter or whatever, you know, it's like, Oh, Maybe he had some mental health issues. Maybe something of this happened. But like that kind of argument is not happening um, mm-hmm. when it's a person of color. Can you talk a little bit? So like one of the one of the things that we uh, sort of touched on in our circle on Sunday was about this like individualization, like this like myth of. Um, not myth, but like how white people are um, allowed to be individualized, like where people of color have not been. Right. Um, Yeah. Well, so white people get to be individuals and people of color get to be a representative of Mm -hmm. the myths about their race or a counter example, you know, um, because they rise above the myths. Right. That's something that many people have talked about um, who are smarter than me and, um, (laughs) you know, have written much more detailed pieces about it. But um, yeah, I think, I think what for me is interesting about that in terms of how uh, police shootings happen or mass shootings happen and the stories about, um, the people involved is that it comes back to those cultural myths mm-hmm. so often. Um, and that comes back to who's telling the story. Like we were talking about, mm-hmm. you know, early on, um, who's telling the story and, and why do they get to tell the story and what mm-hmm. is missing from the story, which is that when a predominantly white media tells these stories of these crimes, um, they're going to fall back on the myths that they know about people of color. Yeah. Whereas there are myths about white people. I mean, they exist, Mm -hmm. but when you yourself are a white person, you don't buy into those necessarily. Mm -hmm. So you see yourself as an individual and thus can sort of empathize or sympathize with the white people involved in the story and thus individualize them too. Whereas with people who are uh, less like you, 
you have to fall back on just what you think you know about Mm -hmm. this kind of a person. And so they fall back on those cultural myths when telling the stories of crime um, for people of color. And when they're telling the stories of crime for white people, Mm -hmm. um, they don't have cultural myths to fall back on. So. Yeah, I think that's kind of where the disparity, at least in media coverage and like the language we use around these things mm-hmm. comes from. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's <laughs> there's a Twitter account. I, I mean, he's on Facebook too, but like, um, what is it? Angry Asian Man, I think. <laughs> like I've been following that Twitter account for like 10 years or something. I mean, it's been going on for a long time. And he tweeted please tell me this is not real. Please tell me this is real. And it was this picture of MSNBC, which I, you know, whatever, I have watched MSNBC. Um, but it was, <laughs> the cryon was talking about panel on Asian American injustice or hate crimes or whatever, um, or the state of Asian America today or something like that. and. All of the boxes were non Asians. <laughs> there was no, there was no Asian person in there, and the only person of color was Eddie Cloud Jr., who is who is great, but not Asian, you know. And so it was just like a very. It's like they couldn't find one Asian reporter. Um, <laughs> it's very weird <laughs> like to to sort and, of yeah. And, you know, Fox News gets roasted for that all the time Mm -hmm. for talking about racial issues, Mm -hmm. um, particularly Black Lives Matter movement related stories and um, and having a fully white panel. So Mm -hmm. why? I mean, if if we're going to roast them for that. Yeah. You know, we have to equally roast yeah all of the so-called liberal media mm-hmm. uh, outlets mm-hmm. for doing the same thing which is excluding people from the conversation mm-hmm. who are the stakeholders in the conversation right exactly so one of the questions that i've been thinking about is who gets to be american and the reason i think about that is because in in all of the history that I'm reading and which is a blip, um, you know, like I need, uh, we, we all need to read a lot more stories about land theft and immigration. That is an upcoming episode. No <laughs> upcoming uh, circle of ours um, to me are really interesting. Um, I, the like people have been excluded at different times in our history, uh, such as like Chinese Exclusion Act and like, you know, other not, like Asians were excluded from like, I don't know, 19, the 1910s or so um, until like 1965. Um, there were Asians here. There, they, Asians have been here, guys, like since like the 1500s. There there has always been with with Asian Americans um, this othering, um, whether it is um, the food we eat, the way we look. Um, and so how do we, as aspiring anti-racists, <laughs> <laughs> this was Kaylina's question on Sunday, <laughs> so now I'm stealing it and throwing it to her. Um, how do we normalize who gets to be American and understanding cultures that are not based in Western European um, traditions that are different um, from that? Um, How do we understand those as equally American? I know it's a big question. Uh, It is. And since it was my question that I came up with I got mm-hmm. to ask it and didn't have to answer it. I know uh-huh. <laughs> oh, okay um, <laughs> cool 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 okay god I don't even know where to start I my initial reaction to this is because I'm an educator a lot of people mm-hmm. go towards like 
exposing kids to other cultures is so mm-hmm. important. And we talk about multiculturalism and, yep. and stuff. And yeah, that is the starting point, mm-hmm. but that's not enough. And as I did say on Sunday at our anti-racist meeting, exposure uh, can often lead to appropriation because if someone is, yeah. you know, seeing a culture and learning about a culture and they really like something about it, um, they can uh, blindly, without realizing, you know, the implications of it, mm-hmm. uh, take that on as something that they are going to do. Um, you know, I just think about this so obviously with black hair right? And the way that has been appropriated in our culture. And so I think, yes, exposure is like a first step, but Mm -hmm. if you leave it there, that's when it becomes a fetishization or um, an appropriation kind of thing, or it can easily become that. So, (laughs) you know, that's just not enough anymore. Being exposed to other cultures is just the bare minimum. Um, well, and I, I mean, that that is so easy to do, too. Like, I mean, you can look at like we can we can look up videos or movies from like any country like and um, be exposed, <laughs> right. so to speak. So, well, like I I am doing these holiday uh, units for my kindergarten students mm-hmm. and I'm actually creating some for the main department of education for their remote learning units. They're called Moose modules, Um, which is, I I very much enjoyed that work, but um, like right now I'm doing spring holidays and (laughs) there are like hundreds of spring holidays. I can't cover them all, but um, you know, I'm covering Ramadan and Mm -hmm. Lent Mm -hmm. and Passover Ostara, which is the pagan spring equinox and um, Vaisakhi which is um, a Sikh um, Mm. holiday. People don't even understand how how Christians historically co-opted traditions from paganism in order to make Christianity more appealing Mm -hmm. to the local pagans. And Mm -hmm. like like a Christmas tree, people have been doing that for 5,000 years. It's really a a Yule tradition Mm -hmm. or... And the Easter bunny is actually mm-hmm. comes from the story of Ostara and the hare, okay. uh, where she found this bird in her path on her way to bring spring to the lands and turned it into a bunny because it was dying. So she turned it into a bunny and she, to honor its bird heritage, she gave it the power to lay eggs once a year. And oh. this, this bunny could give away its eggs to the people at the Ostara festivals. Oh, wow. So like, cool. sorry, this is definitely a tangent from what we were talking about. But no, the point I'm trying to make <laughs> is <laughs> that it is so easy to get exposure to these things. All it takes is like the smallest bit of curiosity and a Google search. Mm-hmm. And yet nobody does that. Yeah. And so like, I don't know, as an educator, one question I'm interested in is how do we even get people to have that curiosity mm-hmm. about the world? Mm-hmm. Um, because people don't even have that curiosity about like their own traditions. Like if Christians don't know that all their stuff is actually pagan, (laughs) I mean, not all their stuff, there's plenty of unique stuff, but like a lot of the traditions are pagan. Mm -hmm. Like if we can't, if you can't know about your own thing, how do, how can I expect you to know about anything else? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's a good, that's a, (laughs) that's a good point. I mean, like people still have to be able to seek it out. So let's say that we somehow figure out how to spark interest <laughs> in, <laughs> in in seeking learning. out in exposure, you know, like exposure therapy or whatever, you know, like um, then what? Like what? You know, how do how do people? How well, can we normalize? Honestly, it? I think one of the ways we normalize the fact that other ways of being exist in the world is that and are normal you, yeah and are normal and are valid and mm-hmm. are equally good to the mm-hmm. other ways of being i think the way we do that is simply by living it out and i say that to myself all the time because sometimes i get stressed I'm Mm -hmm. like, I am the only social justice educator these kids are probably ever going to have. And I need to teach them all the things. And, 
at the end of the day, I can only do so much. Like, mm-hmm. uh, they, they have their parents who are going to instill those ideals and they'll have a bunch of other teachers. And mm-hmm. so what I always say to myself is I can model an alternative way of being an alter- mm-hmm. and an alternative way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think that can even come down to simple things. You know, I have a friend who is a black woman and she refuses um, to do anything but her natural hair. Mm-hmm. And um, that that's one way that she is trying to normalize, you know, black women's hair. Mm-hmm. It's just by saying, you're not going to make me change. I am not going to assimilate to your standard. Mm-hmm. You are going to have to accept me this way. But yeah, I mean, uh, there are so many things we need to normalize. Sometimes the most we can do is just model to other people that other ways of existing are perfectly valid. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, like kids, like I got teased for my lunch when I was a kid. (laughs) I got teased for my lunch when I was a high schooler. Um, I thought, I thought my lunch was inherently better than like my friends, like tuna sandwiches. (laughs) Like, like my chicken adobo was like with rice is like better. So (laughs) whatever. (laughs) Um, and later in high school, my friends would come to my house because they were my friends and because my parents, my mom especially, always welcomed my friends at my house. And they, th- those friends, those friends who would come over, they, I mean, they would eat everything that my mom made because my mom was a great cook and we were starving teenagers because that's what you do. And to this day... I get messages from those friends who are not white uh, or who are white, sorry, um, when they've either bought their first rice cooker <laughs> and they like smell it in the house. They're like, oh, my God, it smells like your mom's house. <laughs> like it's, you know, and um, they have this like sense memory from that. And I'm like, OK, <laughs> cool. Like, you know, like I, I appreciate that. I mean, because it's a nice memory, you know, like it's a nice, good memory for them and and for me, you know, like to be able to have my friends over and stuff. And so, like, I think it's I I, I can appreciate that, like the exposure, you know, like exposure therapy or whatever. I'm probably using that like way wrong, but whatever. <laughs> um, I apologize. Um, the exposure therapy of like being Asian like, sort of helped my friends like figure out normal, normal smells and whatever, you know, it makes them challenge what they think of as normal. Right. Um, I had a kindergarten student this school year, uh, in November, 2020, Mm -hmm. um, we were doing a lesson on opposites Mm -hmm. because that's a kindergarten standard. And, um, we were brainstorming opposites up and down and open and closed and stuff. And, and then, this girl raised her hand and she said, black people and white people. Mm. And I said, what can you, (laughs) can you tell me why, why you think those are opposites? Mm -hmm. And she said, well, it would be weird if black people and white people were friends. Mm. And I was like, woo. Okay. (laughs) Um, we stopped the lesson. We, we, I, I rearranged my lesson plans for a while to, to deal with that. I mean, because you have to, and I think that's one of those things is people just don't lean into that too. People shut, shut that down or say, you shouldn't say that, but that doesn't do anything to help them challenge their way of thinking or mm-hmm. to, um, kind of like unlearn that, that racism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think about that a lot, that incident and just, just the fact that I ha- I bring in friends of color into my classroom mm-hmm. um, to present on different things. I have a Native American friend who comes in on Indigenous Peoples Day. And this mm-hmm. year, I've Zoomed them in with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and for all the holidays, I don't want to pretend I'm an expert on holidays that I don't celebrate. So I have had people Zoom in uh, to talk to my kids about these holidays. Mm-hmm. And they're just amazed that first of all, I have friends who aren't white 
that was mm-hmm. like a shock uh, the first couple times. And now they're used to that. And mm-hmm. then one of them was like, you have friends all around the world. That's so cool. And I think, you know, just like those little things uh, can really make a difference, at least for kids, you know, just Mm -hmm. I'm telling them I've traveled all over the world. Here are all these different holidays. Um, I'm showing first I'm exposing them, but I'm also Mm -hmm. showing them that these are my friends. I don't just Mm -hmm. know about all these different things. I'm not Mm -hmm. just teaching you about all these different things. This is like part of my life. Right. Uh, And just modeling that (laughs) you can be friends with people who aren't white. It's like revolutionary for some of these children and Mm. probably for many adults, it would be revolutionary too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, I just... The more I work in rural America, the more I'm like, holy crap. Like I've I've really come a long way in my understanding. Like I kind mm-hmm. of thought everyone was on the same page about this stuff when I graduated high school, unless they were like an active white supremacist. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I worked in a private school in a city for mm-hmm. a while and it was like that. And now I'm working in a rural, uh, really tiny title one school and it's just astounding. Mm-hmm. I mean, the just the lack of exposure to anything outside of the the norm, the yeah. white norm, the beauty standards, um, the the heteronormative, the right. cis heteronormative standards, mm-hmm. all of those things, they just have no ex- no exposure to, no good associations or positive associations with anyone who challenges those norms. And so I'm like, I'm going to make you love me as your kindergarten (laughs) teacher. And then I'm going to show you that people who live outside the norm, the white cis hetero norms Mm -hmm. are, are, are good because Mm -hmm. you're going to think I'm good and I live outside those norms. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, like, you know, we keep coming back to exposure and, you know, like, because like, I, I do think that is like a very key thing. Um, I was talking to people in the middle of the country. (laughs) They were asking me questions about Asian stuff, uh, like eating with chopsticks or whatever. Uh, by the way, Philip, I mean, (laughs) Maybe some Filipinos eat with chopsticks. It is not a normal part of the table, um, at least not my table. Um, you know, in my in my 20s, I would have gotten, like, very offended by that question. Um, for me now, like, when I can perceive that it is coming from a genuine space of curiosity, um, like, or just, like, not, and just not knowing, but, like, wanting to know, I don't get, like, I'm not offended about that. I am more offended by people who put on, like, ascribe me with certain traits or characteristics that they think I would have because I am blank, you know, Filipino or Asian American or whatever. Um, And so I think, you know, we are, Kaylina and I are facilitators and, and, one of the things that we talked about um, at at the very beginning was that we we want we want people to feel like it's a space where they can ask questions um, because I think you know none of us are perfect and I think it is good to ask questions when you don't know um, it's and not to make people do emotional labor that they don't want to, but like, you know, like it's good to ask questions. It's also good to do your own research. <laughs> like, you know, like if if you can. Right. And I think that's a space where white uh, anti-racists um, can step into and try and, um, you know, if, if there's not a person of color who wants to take on that labor because it's, mm-hmm. um, it is, it's hard to hear a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that's a place where white anti-racists can step up and be like, okay, I can, I can do some of that labor. Everyone. I know that everyone has the ability to do that research, do that work, um, and speak up when, 
when you see racism, I mean, that that's hard, especially when it's in your family or people close to you, your friends. Um, but the microaggressions um, that just come out in casual conversation, I am still learning a lot how mm -hmm. to speak uh, in a way that doesn't offend everybody besides my swearing. Um, <laughs> And uh, we need to normalize swearing too. hundred percent something the I believe in. Swearing is fine. <laughs> like, um, yeah, no, I mean, besides my swearing, I try not to diminish people, but um, I fail a lot and I am trying to do better. And I think when people point it out to me and when I have pointed it out to other people, you know, do it with love uh, because people most likely don't mean to offend and people will probably gripe. That is a thing. My husband and I were talking about that the other day in regards to like mm -hmm. misogynistic um, microaggressions. If he calls someone out and says, oh, maybe don't say that word, people will be upset and annoyed. I would rather people be upset on the way to say to not saying it, you know. Yeah. Um, it's okay if they get upset. And I would say when you're, you know, uh, calling these things to attention with mm -hmm. people, call it what it is. If it's racist, say it's racist. Don't say, oh, that could be offensive because mm. this, because that couches it and hides the reality. And I think part of, uh, normalizing these conversations around hard topics like race is using the language more frequently so yeah. that people don't get offended like racist is, you know, only people lynching people right. in the South, that it's, uh, you can say something that's racist, uh, when that's not like your value system. Mm -hmm. Um, but you have to, uh, you have to know that and intentionally constantly for the rest of your life be identifying where your racism uh, pops up because we've all been socialized into a racist society and as such we all have racism embedded in our in our way of thinking and viewing mm -hmm. the world and so we just call it racist and we need to like destigmatize that word that's that's one way we can you know as aspiring anti-racist challenge mm -hmm. the white norm is by calling it racist when it's racist. I've had friends be like, Hey, that what you just said was racist. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And then I go and learn about it. Mm -hmm. And then guess what? I don't say it again. <laughs> right. Um, like it's, it's really that simple and they didn't do it to attack me. They did it out of love, like you said. So mm -hmm. yeah, I just, I hate when people are trying to like dance around it, be like, that was offensive or, Oh, people could take that the wrong way. It's like, no, it was racist period. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, I, I do not know which Republicans said this most recently. I mean, like uh, a lot of people say it all the time, but like, Someone said being called racist is the worst thing that you could ever call anyone. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, a lot of them say that. They, yeah, they do say that. They get very offended about being called racist or being told that something they said was racist. But, or um, something they did or a policy they right. advocated for. Yeah, they hate it. They really hate it. And uh, by the way, uh, lifting up people of color uh, is not going to diminish white people and their standing in the world. Yeah, like 100%. And, and that reminds me of this really famous quote um, by Lila Watson, who's um, an Australian artist. Mm. Um, and the quote is, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Mm. And that's just such a powerful quote. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. I often say to people like our liberation is bound up together. And that's so true. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we all will be freed and liberated if we 
eradicate racism as well as, you know, other forms of oppression. But, you know, there's nothing that we're going to lose. Not only will our standing not diminish, like we will actually gain things. We will all be liberated together. And I think that's, that's something that people really fail to understand. Mm. I love that. And I think that's a great note to end on. So everyone, please take a look at the show notes. Uh, We will put a bunch of different resources and I hope they're just jumping off point for you in your anti-racist learning. And thank you so much, Kaylina, for being with me here today and processing with me and talking about all this stuff. You know, it's a lifelong journey, I'm sure. Nothing I said was perfect, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I hope you know it helps people to think a little bit and to think deeply. Absolutely. Thank you.